Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, here to stand with you against autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media that threaten human cognition, solidarity, and survival. It's time to play together. This is Team Human. Playing for Team Human today... Daring Democracy co-authors Francis Moore LePay and Adam Eichen. But there's nothing inevitable that somehow human beings are too weak, too vulnerable to be able to be true living Democrats. What's required for democracy is not superhuman. As daunting as this democracy crisis is, the most hopeful thing for me is that we have the solutions. We know what policies can really push this in a new direction. Francis and Adam will be showing us how to fight the anti-democracy movement by drawing on our courage and hope, it's not too late. It's Team Human to the rescue. My faith in democracy was, I guess, first shaken when I read Walter Lippmann, who was a uh, well-meaning uh, public relations specialist, really the founder of public relations in America, and... Uh, He's gotten a lot of critique for it because it sounds really awful, but he was actively questioning our ability in America to engage meaningfully in democracy, given how little most of us know about the issues that we're supposed to be voting on. And his solution for this difficult conundrum was to get a council of experts. He thought we could create some kind of a government administration that would be a nonpartisan group of expert professionals and scientists and mathematicians and engineers, really people from every field, who would look at problems, analyze them, and then 
tell the government what to do, you know, how to solve that particular problem. And then the government would hire public relations specialists who could communicate the government's reasoning to the people so that they support it. So if the experts decide, well, it looks like America is going to have to go to war, um, then the public relations people would help get Americans behind that war. Or if the experts decided Americans, you say, need to use less water, then the public relations people would teach Americans how to do that. And it was only a slightly cynical understanding of democracy based in, well, at least we're going to try to educate people, and if we can't educate them, we'll just convince them to do the right thing because the experts know what's actually right. And Walter Lippmann's protege, the perhaps more famous public relations specialist, Ed Bernays, who was responsible for all sorts of uh, dastardly <laughs> public relations plots, um, you know, getting uh, young women to march in a parade holding cigarettes in order to normalize cigarette smoking for women. I mean, he did a lot of stuff that we would look at very questionably today. But his worldview was an extension of Walter Lippmann's, where he was really saying, look, people are just too stupid to engage in the democratic process. They don't know how to vote. They don't know how to evaluate. They're bumpkins. They're reactive. They're impulsive. And what they need is some smart people to make all the choices for them, and then some even smarter public relations people to convince them to do those choices. So it's a version of Walter Lippmann, except a little bit less uh, benevolent, a little bit nastier in its understanding of people. And it's largely the form of faux democracy that the Frankfurt Group, that guys like uh, Adorno and Walter Benjamin were getting really concerned about back in the 1930s and 40s, right after Hitler, that what they were concerned about was that as democracy and capitalism, democracy and consumer culture became equated then people would begin to engage with democracy with the same mindset that they engage with their consumer choices. So picking a candidate or voting is sort of like picking a brand of toothpaste or candy or automobile, that it's your consumer choice, that it's what's reflecting these weird, silly, corporate-determined, individual self-appraisal rather than an intelligent expression of what you think we actually need right now from an administrative perspective. So the danger here would be that we would think of democracy as consumers, that we're buying a president, and that all of the values of consumer culture, which they saw as really as, as fascist and manipulated, would end up becoming the values of a democratic process. And by the time shows like American Idol came to America, uh, yeah, we got to a place where we re-anchored democracy as some form of entertainment and personal expression. Who do you want to vote for? Which of these pop stars is the one that you like the most? And 
kids would then vote with their smartphones or go online. And it was as if we were instilling a generation with a new understanding of democracy as this picking your favorite one and then expressing yourself through this vote. Along with that, we had America's entertainment culture dying. The Our, our film industry, our uh, fictional television industry was dying because it was getting too expensive for television networks to pay for all that programming. The traditional narratives of the stories that we were watching were also starting to really ring false to us. And the morals, even the good morals, the ethics and the reasoning of traditional narrative television was replaced by reality TV, shows like Cops, which then really became just as fake. They went from being cameras in real places to being lies, to being setups, to being scripted shows that are masquerading as reality so as not to pay the union wages of real writers and actors. So those two lines, those two developments end up really crossing and creating this weird, perfect storm. And we get a presidential election where people are, on the one hand, voting as self-expression rather than the utility of the vote, and on the other hand, you know, appreciating reality TV as reality. It's a really dangerous combination of events. The real problem here is that self-expression is important. It's truly an important thing that people feel like they're expressing themselves and seeing themselves and their values reflected out there in the real world. But not as far away from the center of activity as as a vote. You know, your your vote is the very end. It's the most utilitarian expression of democracy, not your core values being expressed. I mean, it's like you can't fight pollution once you already have a plastic bottle in your hand. At that point, all you can do is find a recycling bin. You got to make the best choice you've got when the plastic bottle's already there. And now you can think again about, well, before I buy the next bottle of water. I'm going to think about whether I want to end up with a plastic bottle in my hand. I can get in earlier on the process. I could try to affect change from earlier down that food chain. But you can't retake democracy by trying to express your true values at the very end of the line on election day. You retake democracy by living more democratically. Your binary presidential choice may actually be the least truly democratic part of the whole process. Don't look for true democracy on election day. You, know, you look for it in the way you engage with the world the whole rest of the year. You know, and in that sense, democracy is not dead. And here to help us retrieve its best and most human attributes, one of my true heroes, Francis Morlapay, and one of my new ones, Adam Eichen, who've collaborated on a new book and movement, Daring Democracy. My name is Andy Fisher, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Master Taylor, and I'm on Team Human. 
I'm Pia Mancini from Open Collective, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard Heinberg, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and I am on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guests today, Adam Eichen and Francis Moore-Lepay, the authors of Daring Democracy. Where I want to start out is um, I had lunch maybe three or four years ago with Henry Kissinger's guys. You know, he's got this thing, Henry Kissinger Associates, who are there, you know, he was a secretary of state for people who don't know under under uh, Nixon, but then he became a big uh, uh, expert on China and global relations and all. And um, when I had lunch with them in New York, they said, um, so Doug, how do you feel about the fact that you know, democracy has been proven a failure. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, that obviously Americans are proving themselves just kind of too stupid, too uninformed, and too influenced by media for, to be considered an intelligent body politic. You know, so Bernays was right that, you know, people are just going to be influenced by propaganda, so be the propagandist. Uh, and I was, I was like, I, that can't be true. And I spent a couple of years saying, they're just wrong. They're so cynical. They're so terrible. And then we had the recent election, and I thought, wow, are they right? Is, is democracy a failure? And I guess you guys would say, no, they're wrong. Democracy is not a failure. Well, can I jump into that? Because <laughs> I'm burning up here. Well, I mean, I think we are vulnerable. Human beings are vulnerable to being persuaded to look at the world in a way that actually defeats us. And that's uh, the dominant worldview in large part in this country. And I also think that we are capable of becoming aware of how there's been now a very conscious strategy orchestrated to convince us of this worldview that the government is the enemy, the market is magical, if we privatize, privatize, it's all going to be better. And the market sorts out winners and losers fairly. So if you don't win in the market, then it's your fault. And so we create this blame and shame, brutal capitalism, we call it. Yes, it is possible, but it's also possible to wake up. And people throughout the United States are waking up to that today. Yeah, and I, I'm not really sure that we've ever had a, a really functional democracy in the kind of true sense. And I'm not trying to get into whether republic or democracy that some people love to quibble about. But I just more mean that the the policies and kind of the, the way we structure our democracy has just never been overly inclusive. Our democracy was built on genocide and slavery. People have always been excluded. And not everyone has had access to education. And I think that those two things kind of have led in a lot of ways, you know, kind of... Um, pushed by this anti-democracy movement that has made it so much worse. But we've never really had a democracy where you have really broad-based public education that teaches civics, that teaches how to engage, that, you know, prevents the ability to be manipulated by media and other institutions, as well as the, the just the, the sheer fact that our democracy has always been exclusive as opposed to inclusive. And, and there have been periods in our history, and being 73 is so great, I can say it because I lived it, during, say, the 60s, the war on poverty, the Office of Economic Opportunity that paid me to be a community organizer and really believed in active citizenship, maximum feasible participation. 
and certainly what led to programs of the New Deal. That was very much led by labor, by other citizens' organizations demanding more voice, more voice. So I agree with Adam, and I also know that we've done better, and we can do much better than we're doing today. So there's nothing inevitable. You know, your question was great that started it off. But there's nothing inevitable that somehow human beings are too too weak, too vulnerable to be able to be true living Democrats, uh, that we've stepped up and it's all realizing our own power and that what's required for democracy is not superhuman. It's really being true to our true essence, our need for a voice that is power, our need for connection with others, and our need for a sense of purpose in life. Those are deep human needs. They're not just for a few crazy activists. So that democratic seed is very much the essence of our humanness, I believe. Well, and that's obviously the essence of this of this broadcast is is team human, the idea that, you know, human intervention in the machine, whether it's capitalism or artificial intelligence, is... Uh, is is necessary and uh, I would hope inevitable, but uh, it's certainly uh, uh, required if we're going to make it through the uh, you know the stranger tractor at the end of this <laughs> at the end of this little era. But the great uh, the great intellectuals who left uh, fascism, who left Germany, you know Adorno and Horkheimer and Benjamin and the Frankfurt Group, they warned us for half a century that if the the media commercial spectacle ends up getting enmeshed in democratic process, that we're going to be in trouble. So when you see kids educated about democracy or voting through American Idol, and then a president educated in leadership through a reality television program. What happens is uh, a democracy does end up surrendered to the value system of the attention economy. And that's really tricky. And then you see the fourth estate, CNN, MSNBC, and everybody just covering what's going to get them eyeballs rather than uh, making an accurate depiction of democratic process and, and, and of politics. So, so how do we, um, as a people, reconnecting on a peer-to-peer, eyeball-to-eyeball level, um, how do we uh, uh, kind of reify um, the, the, the real-life non-spectator democracy that, that we uh, seem to be falling into? Well, I think that there's two things. I mean, the first kind of before we get there or even kind of simultaneously, I think your point is exactly right that we have to fix our media system, that President Donald Trump is a byproduct of a real assault on our media system over the last about four decades. Um, You know, the abolition of the Fairness Doctrine, the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which allowed for consolidation of media um, and the kind of various other kind of takedowns of basic you know standards to make sure that our media system is not corporate controlled and is acting in the public good and airing a range of views um, and we go into that into our you know in our book daring democracy that um, you know we really need to rethink uh, media as integral to democracy and democracy reform and we can no longer just focus on policies around voting or money in politics which while are, are completely essential to uh, democracy itself we must also include media and there have been a lot of scholars that have been arguing this for a long time but I think you're seeing this this 
real awareness that that's the case now, that we really need to treat media and democracy as, as one. Um, and, that, and that's a great shift. That, that is a change. Right. And that is really hard in a world where you're the, the world's biggest search engine is also the world's biggest advertising platform. And lobbyist. And lobbyist. So then, then how do you disconnect that? You go regulate, you get Bernie Sanders in there and pass laws and say, you can't do this anymore? You know, I mean, it, it would be a sh- a, certainly a big title shift. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, the idea of doing that now is it, it, it's daunting. And I think that um, given what we now know, we feel part of a true democracy movement for the first time in my life that crosses causes that crosses um, generations, that crosses ethnic ethnicities. And um, once that begins to happen, and then people start to reinterpret and make possible the election of a true democracy leader, uh, Bernie Sanders, many others, that would then say, okay, this is not about oppressive regulations. This is about setting standards, safeguards in our media, and would be willing, especially now having this proof of the way that racism was used against us by, uh, you know, using Facebook and and how the Russians uh, apparently intervened, that even people who would before have been a little nervous realize that we must set some safeguards in our media in order to protect to protect our safety, um, not to mention our democracy, you know, which is part of safety, of course. But I, I think there's an awakening to the, this awareness of the possibility. But I think the key, key, while I agree with Adam and you about democracy and uh, the media being now con- so conjoined as as essential partners, that this face-to-faceness, while people are more and more on their devices, that loneliness is now an, a national epidemic. And people are also feeling that hunger for connection with real people. And that's what we has changed both of our lives through the Democracy Spring March and other direct action where people meeting strangers and realizing that very different people, different than you grew up with, share your commitment to real democracy, what we call living democracy. So I think there is a hunger that a, a true democracy movement in the field, in the communities can meet. As as we saw, you know, with the outburst with the, with the Women's March and then the burst of indivisible these thousands of groups across the country are looking for a direction now right i I think this isolation is really really key because it's you know on one hand you know much has been written about the kind of the the self-reinforcing you know uh kind of isolation in in social media pockets that people are talking to themselves essentially you know you right wing left wing and it's kind of it's just one big bubble um, but or there's then, an algorithm, right? There's for an algorithm, you. essentially, <laughs> yeah. And then you have kind of things like Cambridge Analytica or other, um, you know, data analytics firms being able to target those specific uh, bubbles based on, you know, potentially thousands of different metrics. But then you also just have the the, the kind of the trends in um, geography of and of you know and demographics where people are just living with like-minded individuals. That as people move to cities. They're increasingly becoming more and more kind of in a bubble, and then rural America is 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 kind of ha- another bubble, um, and that's also something that we really have to think about. I was just uh, actually with my brother in Southern Oregon, right outside of Eugene, and I really noticed this this real stark shift 
of, of the difference between rural America and uh, city America. And that's something that we really need to kind of figure out. And it's not something that's easy. But I do think it starts with, with having that face-to-face interaction. Um, there's a lot of great conversation that came out of that, that moment with, with my brother. Um, and I think that that's kind of one of the things that we talk about in our book, that you know, when you're going out there and, and doing activism around democracy or about really anything, you are having those conversations with people that you wouldn't normally be talking with. And you start, this is what we, what delighted us in, in, in this research is that there's so much agreement in America that our system is rigged and, you know, at least 84% of us both agree that there's way too much influence of money in politics and want a real, a real uh, redo, a real improvement in the way that we fund elections. So there's so much agreement on basics. And what is 60% is it that say that um, everyone should have the right to a voice, a vote that counts? Yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, that should be higher, but still, as Adam likes to say, that could, that could end a filibuster. <laughs> so there, there's a lot of agreement uh, on democracy. It's not just an activist. Yeah, and, and three uh, three quarters of Americans believe that they themselves have too little influence in Washington D.C., and that's that cuts across the divide. I mean, there are ways to bridge this divide, and I think it's just exactly what you were saying is is having these conversations, and sometimes they're tough. Right. Well, one of the uh, things I keep hearing in in the way you speak about these issues is uh, it, that we have to set standards. The idea of setting standards is frightening to a lot of people because it sounds like, oh, well, who's going to set those standards? And those standards are going to be set in a way that represses me and other people like me, you know, or, you know, and that's maybe what I would hear more from the sort of uh, more red state uh, type of libertarian people. Yet um, the blue state free to be you and me people here in standards, they hear the moralizing as if... uh, I mean, and it's tricky to talk about it, but when we start talking about human values, it slides into uh, a positive moral framework that human beings are part of a we're part of a moral universe, you know, and that that to argue that is really scary then to the sort of atheist blue state uh, uh, secular humanitarians. So that's why I like to go straight to what we know about human nature. It's actually quite comforting because anthropologists and now people doing research on our brain, how it reacts in different conditions, we know that we are so profoundly social. We have a very deep, deep sensitivity to fairness. And that's not just Homo sapiens, some other primates too. Um, so that need for fairness, because, and I think it evolved that way. My hunch is that is because we knew that unfairness would break down the tribe, and we depended on each other so much that we really learned how to how to keep the bully at bay, you know, and to keep fairness, keep an egalitarian tribes going until very recently in our evolution. But also, we are the most cooperative species, and they, we, we're told by researchers who do research on little toddlers that we're we're so different from other primates and our capacity for shared intentionality to coming up with plans and carrying them out together. So I count on that sensibility, the fairness, cooperation, the empathy, uh, so that people get it, that it's not it's not right that now, you know, a handful of people, I believe the last I read uh, was 20 Americans control as much wealth as the bottom half of the country. They get it. That can't work. You I know? know, but when you hear that 
argument on, uh, say, Bloomberg Radio, the business channel. They'll say, well, yes, there's an elite that has more wealth than they've ever had before, but those are the people that have made it so that the masses live the way that kings and queens lived, you know, <laughs> 300 years not. ago. <laughs> Except that they're not. I mean, the point is that half of American babies, slightly more than half, depend on public aid for their sustenance. That is such a measure to me of heartbreaking inequality. And we know, because of great work done in the UK, uh, social epidemiologists there, that inequality itself is correlated closely, closely with just about every social ill you can imagine, from homicide to infant mortality. Uh, so we know that human beings do not do well in extremely unequal societies. And now we, the U.S., is the most extreme economic inequality in all the Western world, and even more so than many countries we would consider underdeveloped. So this is not normal kind of, yes, you know, there's never perfect equality, but we are so far from fairness, and people understand that. But that's because fairness is not currently built into our economic system or cultural ethos. You know, we are in a, a kind of a Frank Baum, Wizard of Oz, follow your heart, uh, uh, Calvinist uh, mentality where, I mean, it, it's a it's this kind of bastardized Darwin, uh, the, this notion of survival of the fittest, which wasn't his, but the idea of the survival of the fittest individual in the system and that you're going to get what you work for and that, you know, and that's the only way for the sky to be the limit. That's the only way for you to have an unfettered chance of reaching your dream and all this other stuff. You know, sure, we can share with each other when there's a hurricane. Look, we'll bring our boats out or we'll rescue the British off the beach or whatever if they, you know, bring our private boats in Dunkirk, which is a fascist fantasy. I don't even want to go into that war movie. <laughs> but, but you know, that, that when times are hard, we'll do something. But otherwise, you know, protect yourself and your family and get strong. And that's the way we innovate. That's why we're the leaders in the world. And we got to get that back. It's all this socialism that's, that's holding us back. Well, let me say, the whole premise of what you're describing, which is a pretty good summary, I agree, <laughs> but it's based on the idea of this Ronald Reagan term, the magic of the marketplace. There is such a thing he believed of a free market with no rules. Well, actually, no such thing exists that's completely uh, fantasy. And what we have, instead of a no-rules market, we have a one-rule market, which is highest return to existing wealth. So if that's your driver of your economy, which it is today, yes, markets are marvelous for exchanging goods, but when there's the single driver, wealth accrues to wealth accrues to wealth until we end up with this just unheard of concentration. And so people can't afford good homes, they can't afford education without massive debt, and we're all living stressed, and we're all living too many of us feeling defeated. And that's why we wrote this book, to expose the fallacy that, you know, it's magic. You don't want to look behind the curtain, but we've got to look behind the curtain and drop these magical ideas. Well, the behind the curtain is really the, the operating system of interest-based central currency. If you've got to grow currency and you've got to keep paying back just to have the utility of exchange. And eventually... I mean, I'm sure they didn't realize in the 1300s when they put it in place, but 600 years later, it balloons into the situation we're in now. 
But I also want to underscore, because you threw into that mix people's belief that only this current system, not only does it sort out winners and losers fairly, which creates this kind of blame and shame culture, but you said that people believe that this somehow is the only way that we have innovation. And yet, don't remember the exact the exact statistics, but the truth that is in there, and it's footnoted in our book, Daring Democracy, is that several Scandinavian countries, for example, rank better in terms of, uh, or at least as well, in terms of innovation in their economy as the U.S. does, and they're considered to be, you know, democratic socialist. Right. And, you know, exactly. Skype and Nokia and Ericsson and, uh, you know, heck, a lot, a lot of the stuff that we use is Scandinavian. Of course, then global capitalism ends up consuming those innovators and yeah you know i mean one of the things that i think is was most shocking to to both of us when we wrote this book and was really going when we were going into the literature already on you know where did this ideology come from where did this notion of capitalism this kind of free market on steroids hyper libertarianism you know rugged self-interest you know where where did this come from I mean, it's been around for you know centuries but we really kind of chronicled the fact that this ideology was really perpetuated and and pushed starting in the 1970s, a little bit in the 60s, but really starting in the 70s by really well-funded individuals. I mean, we're talking a cabal of billionaires that fund think tanks, you know, programs at schools, textbooks. Exactly. The economics programs of America's universities were funded by extreme far-right, you know, neoliberal uh, uh, funders yeah. who created chairs, not for socialist thinkers, but who created chairs for, you know, Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman and people. Samuel Huntington, right. the professor at Harvard who warned of the excess of democracy in right. the 70s. Right. I mean, th- this is not, you know, something that happened out of the blue. This was really coordinated and the media stuff as well. I mean, the consolidation of media. I mean, the 1996 Telecommunications Act was lobbied and by the Heritage Foundation, right. which was, again, funded by the same billionaire cabal that tried to push forth this um, slow you know, and steady. They won exactly. the race, at and, least and, for now. It's, it's really interesting though, but they did play the long game and they won. Um, it wasn't even that long a game. I was just looking. <laughs> I was just looking at the increase in lobbyists. You know, this was all premised on the idea that corporations were under threat, and they greatly increased the budget of the Chamber of Commerce. But I just noticed that uh, just in ten years, from the early seventies to early eighties, the number of lobbyists in Washington multiplied more than tenfold. Something incredible. Yeah, it was a really large increase. Really large increase. So it was some of the traditional mechanisms as well as these more subtle ones of changing the mindset itself uh, through, as we say, from grade school to grad school, including Harvard. Yeah. And I think if I can just jump in really quickly, you know, another thing that really kind of gets to the second part is that, you know, we talk about the first part, which is manipulating the mindset of this kind of this anti-democracy movement, really trying to shape the way we think. But the second part is rigging the rules. And kind of like, you know, things like voter suppression and unleashing money in politics. But that aspect, I've increasingly begun to realize that it really is because the policies of these kind of extreme libertarian free market economic, you know, beliefs are unpopular. And so the way to pass them is by making the system in favor of of, that that basically a minority can push forth these kind of really brutal policies. Because I really do believe that the the majority of Americans don't want a system where corporations have more power than the ordinary American. Right. But part of the problem may be, um, this would be the other way of critiquing democracy, that 
democracy is so competitive. We have campaigns and races and 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 this kind of winner takes all electoral uh, electoral system. You know, uh, compare it with say. Uh, you know, the consensus building of Occupy Wall Street or of Lumio, this, you know, this app that tries to uh, build consensus rather than sort of parliamentary rule. You know, if if we have a system where winning is what matters, then when I meet, uh, I met uh, Frank Luntz, the Republican pollster, and I was like, how could you do this? My God. And you know, you're lying. and You know this. And, and he just looked at me and he said, do you want to win? As if if I'm going to be weak and don't really want, don't really, really believe my side is right, then I won't do whatever it takes to get my side in office. And I'm not willing to do whatever it takes because I believe in standards and morality right. and ethics. So if we have a winner-takes-all democracy, then how is the good guy supposed to win? Yeah, I mean, this whole idea that politics is war was literally stated by Newt Gingrich in a speech in the 1980s where he said that we have to wage this war with the uh, savagery. savagery, but also with the, he had several adjectives, but it ended up, yes, in the savagery of civil war. And it's not that politics is not a matter of coming to agreement with your opponent. It is overwhelming. It is destroying the enemy's fighting capacity. And uh, so he was adamant, adamant, adamant that uh, we had to change the whole tenor. And it was just winner, winner. All that mattered was winning. And that, to me, is the opposite of democracy. Um, that, to me, leads then to, yes, the, the most cutthroat wins, but I don't think any American would say, yes, I just want the most cutthroat president or the most cutthroat senator. I mean, that clearly is not democracy. So um, I, I think that this this is really the key here. And one of the things then results is actually some of the most talented uh, people are never able to run. And I just right. want to give you one example of a woman who was a waitress in Auburn, Maine, in a small diner. And that when in the 1990s, Maine became the first state really to have full public financing. Uh, she hadn't heard of it yet, but her friends saw incredible leadership in this woman, Deb Simpson. And they went to her and said, why don't you run for office? And they said, well, what are you talking about? She said, I, I don't have any money. And they said, no, you just have to get $5 from 50 people. That qualifies you. And then you show yourself to be a good candidate and you can win, Deb. Because of clean elections in Maine, Deb served five terms. She was so brilliant. She became chair, co-chair of a judiciary committee. She sat on a national uh, Democratic Party committee and served brilliantly. Her colleagues thought the world of her. So that kind of talent uh, is totally impossible to realize and to benefit from. We all benefit from that kind of leadership if we have this cutthroat Winner take all, but you know this idea. I'll do whatever I can, no matter how ruthless. But she she was sorry, she was kind of taken out by dark money and just in in crazy xenophobic um, racist, racist yeah. ads. I mean, it was it was the system of of money and politics that was unleashed by this anti democracy movement that cut out her career. I mean, it was brutal. And then Maine came back. I mean, we tell the story of Maine because it's so much about never say die, mm. right? And so then the Mainers who had fought for clean elections, I, we got to tell you one thing about clean elections in Maine, the early campaign, because they were such leaders, that there was a, um, 
a polling firm that refused to poll the question of whether the, they could win on this money out of politics platform uh, because it had no chance and it would be unethical for them to take the, their money from the campaign because it couldn't possibly win. And then it went one by 12 percentage points. Um, yeah. And so, so, but then, but then the dark money came in, and she was wiped out. My friend Deb, my hero. We have a film that my son Anthony LePay made that's on our website about her. Uh, she was wiped out. But then, uh, it was a tragedy for her and the state to lose such a leader. But the Mainers came back and uh, and figured out a way to develop somewhat of a barrier against the kind of attack by enabling people to go out and to get, raise more money to counter if if uh, if outsiders come in. So is her star- story part of what you call the canopy of hope? Yeah, yeah, and you know it's 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 the canopy of hope but yet there are these setbacks but she showed I mean the main thing that Deb represents to me is the incredible courage to come out of nowhere, you know, being a waitress all your life and then running for office and then devoting yourself to to the public good so much that you are so esteemed by your teammates and uh, serving all those years. So it's it's that spirit she embodies for me of real living democracy and Mainers Mainers overall. You might mention the uh, Adam the uh, the uh, ranked choice voting campaign. I mean, one of the things I'll quickly say is that for me, one of the most encouraging things is just the fact that, as daunting as this democracy crisis is, as as daunting as this movement uh, to undermine our democratic institutions is, that we really go into depth and it's really depressing. But the most hopeful thing for me is that we have the solutions. We know what policies can really push this in a new direction. And some of them are haven't really been tried. Some of them have been tried. Um, and we have evidence that it works. Um, but the story that I, and this maybe gets to kind of what you're saying about the um, politics as war, because this, this you know, the winner-take-all system that we have in the United States, the a way to get around that is through something called ranked choice voting. So instead of voting for one candidate, you actually vote, you rank your, your choices. And then if the candidate you vote for in the first place comes in last and no one gets a majority but the final place the person who comes in last gets eliminated and then that person's votes gets reallocated based on second choice um, and no state had ever implemented it but Maine got it on the ballot in 2016 and so it ended up winning in the, uh, on the 2016 election most people don't realize this but at the same time Donald Trump won there were 14 out of 17 ballot initiatives pro-democracy ballot initiatives uh, pro-democracy ballot initiatives that passed on election day 2016 uh, but so I was interviewing the the campaign manager of Ranked Choice Voting because I said, you know, how do you possibly give a short explanation of Ranked Choice Voting System? It's a real, it's a change in how you vote. It's un- it's different than anything people ever kind of have ever experienced. How do you do that in a couple minutes? And he said to me, well, we did this thing called beer elections. Maine has this big kind of culture around craft breweries. So he was like, we invited people to the breweries, and the breweries were happy to host them. We'd give everyone a free flight of beer, and then we'd have people vote on it using the ranked choice system. They'd rank their beers, and then they'd hold a mock election. And so you'd get the people who were just regulars at the brewery, you'd have the good government advocates, and you'd have people who were just interested. And it passed because of innovative ways to explain in a face-to-face manner well, what are the ways we can kind of push democracy to where it's never been? Right, and it's interesting that you you seem to marvel uh, at the at the idea as if it was a contrast that well, even in this state that voted for Trump, these pro democracy initiatives passed. But I think for a lot of the people who voted for Trump, and I can understand this, 
his election was a, a reified the idea of democracy, that this establishment party is not going to shove their elitist people down our throats, that we're going right. to put up, you know, like it's like in the Howard Stern show, we're going to elect Hank, Hank the Angry Dwarf. They elected him the most beautiful man of the year in People Magazine's uh, uh, reader contest because they just wanted to show that if our votes matter, we're going to make we're going to make this happen. Right. Well, I think that, you know, another very quick thing is that um, South Dakota was one of the places in 2016 to pass a ballot initiative about democracy. And it was actually one of the most sweeping pieces of anti-corruption legislation uh, that's ever been on the ballot. I mean, it was it had pro-democracy public financing vouchers. It had anti-corruption money and politics regulation, lobbying regulation. I mean, it really was this comprehensive package and it passed. It passed in South Dakota and South Dakota has voted for the Republican in 80 percent of all statewide elections in its history. And that's why and I've been getting in a a lot of trouble with my own listeners for doing this. But that's why I feel like the appropriate response to the, the Trump upswell is not to back people into a corner by calling them racist or trying to make their vote equivalent with, you know, supporting Hitler or something. No, that these are people who felt disenfranchised for whatever reason and got their voice heard. And that's that's something that can be uh, pulled out. That's something that can be, you know, identified and and nourished, um, you know, so it makes uh, maybe more articulate choices. But that's in some ways, that's America's strength, not its weakness. Drain yeah. the swamp, right? Yeah. I mean, we point, in a way, I, I totally agree that not gotta, that he did, but <laughs> that we gotta, you know that that actually people who voted for Trump and people who voted strongly against Trump, really for they were doing it for the same reasons yeah. that we know the system is rigged and some group thought the way to deal with that would be to just throw a pie in your face and give you Donald Trump and I get it I mean I I can really imagine being in that position and feeling that was my only choice, so I agree with you completely that we. That we, those who are, those of us who are now so profoundly upset by what he stands for and what he's doing to our country, dividing our country and isolating us internationally, that you know we need to reach out and say we absolutely understand why you did what you did, and we're so sorry with you that Donald Trump is not draining the swamp and doing exactly the opposite and damaging your your chances in life, not helping you. I, I was just having a conversation the other day with somebody who did vote for Donald Trump. And he got so close to kind of seeing the contradiction, but he was railing against the Koch brothers. He was talking about how much he hates the Koch brothers and, of course, George Soros. And I politely said, no, no, it's not George Soros. If you want to have a Democratic donor, it's probably Tom Steyer. But, you know, I gave that to him. But then, but then he was going on about how, you know, how he's like, I love Trump, uh, but sometimes I hate him. But, you know, it's the only way to get around the, the money-dominated system is by electing a billionaire. And I was like... Okay, like that doesn't really make sense, but you know, and then he almost got it. He kind of, without even prompting, I, he said, "But then again, it is kind of weird that I elected a billionaire as if he doesn't have his own class self-interest." And I was like, "Yes, you're so close. <laughs> you're so close." And I didn't push any more because you know the conversation ended. But I really do think that you're right on that point. That there really is this. You know, it may have been misleading. Uh, the, you know, the drain the swamp, the Trump as this. You know, he, he said it himself. I can't be bought. Right, and people people clung to that because well, he's already been bought. But that's <laughs> he, continues, I say, he continues to be bought. <laughs> but but when I go to the other side, and I'm sure you guys have met with these folks, like um, um, Center for American Progress, and what who runs that? Nira Tandon. Uh, yeah, so Nira Tandon. So I meet with her, and all they're interested in is let's 
get some good opposition research on Trump. Yeah. You know, so that we can make uh, make his supporters hate him. And that's the old game. That's not. I mean, I said, why don't instead of worrying about, you know, national politics elections and negative blah, blah. What if we just go into communities and teach people how to do uh, direct action or mm. how to do yeah. mutual aid or, you know, social social development? Don't tell them it's blue. Don't tell them it's red. Just initiate programs for people to help one another in local communities. And then three, four years from now, the candidates who support that kind of activity can reach down. They can reach up. And, oh, it turns out it's Democrats, maybe. But uh, they don't want the big parties don't want to do that. They don't want to do genuine grassroots. Um, I mean, they want to do grassroots campaigning, but they don't want to do grassroots organizing in the way of a genuine community organization. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing just to kind of go on this point, most people don't realize that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party in 2016 had one of the most sweeping pieces of anti like the, their platform about democracy reform was amazing. But Hillary Clinton mentioned Citizens United once in a debate, and she never talked about the rest of her platform. So I mean, they're not even at that point of, of flaunting their own, you know, democracy reforms that they've already decided to put in the platform. It's already a part of their campaign, but they refuse to even run on that. Well, it's really hard to have a Democratic Party run with a dynasty family in the current environment. I mean, that was... True. It's a problem. I mean, and yeah, I'm sure you deserve to be president. I'm sure you do. You worked really hard. Your husband was a shit. I mean, I get that. But come on, it's, it's more... Our democracy is more important than that right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, and yet, right now, the party could be putting forward the kind of progressive initiatives that were in its own platform, and that's what's so missing. And and I agree with you what you were just saying about local organizing, and that's why we're so excited to be part of what we call the democracy movement and closely allied with this big canopy of the democracy initiative, which now for several years, unbeknownst to most of us since about 2013, has been reaching out and reaching and talking across causes from NAACP to the communications workers to the Sierra Club to Greenpeace and on and on. Uh, now 60 organizations all committed to profound democracy reforms to extend and protect democ uh, voting rights and to ensure progressive changes to get money out of politics. They, they're committing to that together, uh, not giving up their issues but committing together to put resources into democracy itself. And this is historic. And the leader of it, Wendy Fields, is terrific, comes out of the labor movement. And she really gets it. So we were just talking to her this morning, and she's totally about, I love her last name is Fields, because I bet she used the word field <laughs> 20 times in A our field conversation. Organizing, yeah. Field organizing, field organizing. And that's what can make the difference, this face-to-face -face saying, yes, there are reforms that can help us all. I mean, from the minimum wage to, you know, the kind of uh, voting rights protections and redistricting based on fair rules, not partisan rules, that can make a huge, huge difference. It's interesting. When I, when I hear you talk, and I mean this as a, I mean this as a compliment. Um, I always worry when somebody says that. <laughs> it reminds me of listening to Timothy Leary in the early 1970s, in not in the content of what you're saying, but in the idea that optimism is a form of subversion, that hope 
In other words, he called it, he wrote Diary of a Hope Fiend as a kind of a joke on the title of, of Diary of a Dope Fiend from Crowley. But you are a hope fiend, but not just hope in the terms of a blind Pollyannish, uh, um, you know, useless, yeah. useless uh, saccharin, but um, it, a genuine belief, not in the placebo effect, but in somehow uh, uh, triggering a spirit of democratic can-doism that's contingent on a change in attitude exactly. from hopelessness to somehow converting or transforming despair into energy. Absolutely. I, I will say, having worked with her basically 80 hours a week for a full year on this book, she has transformed me from a pessimist <laughs> to somebody who well, believes in the possibility of things. My daughter Anne and I wrote a piece once called Demo- um, Hope is not for wimps, right? And right. and the theme, and I was so excited to see a neuroscientist arguing this, that actually hope is power, that having hope reorganizes our brains in such a way. Um, he's a doctor at Harvard. I believe he has neuroscience in the bag, but maybe I'm overstating his qualifications. But anyway, I believe him. He says that uh, the brain actually, if you have hope, then unconsciously even you're moving towards solutions. So it is not powerlessness. It is the opposite. It is, and, and I also, going back to what is human nature, you know, I often say that if we were basically whiners, complainers, and easily in despair, we would never have made it to the incredible accomplishments of our species. And so uh, that's what we want to be. We want to be daring if, if we have, have a chance. I mean, I always say, I haven't said this in a long time, but I, I believe that at least we want to be heroes to ourselves. Even if, you know, a hero may just being whatever, taking really good care of your kids, that's, that, that can be heroic. But we, we, we have that need to count. Um, one of my heroes is Eric Fromm. I learned a lot from his books, and he wrote that we got to discard the Rene Descartes idea of I think, therefore I am, and he argues, no, the human essence, I am because I affect. And if we're hopeless, it's very hard to be effective. <laughs> right, which is why that's the first uh, uh, first of the three main you know kind of stages of reclaiming democracy you talk about in the book, is rethink the crisis. And rethink the crisis really, as I understood it, is to be able to transform despair into hope. In other words, and to see, oh, wait a minute, there's this, if America is in despair, great. It means they're ready to do something. They, they're witnessing what's right, happening. Right. So then number two is expose the roots. And that's really hard to do. So I've been exposing roots in my last two or three books. And that really challenges the hope despair equation. Because when you look at the roots, oh my God, I can trace it all the way back to the invention of agriculture and the Bible and, 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 and property and text and messianic thinking and progress. I mean, oh my God, the roots... Explain how you see exposing well, the roots. I so identify with what you're saying. And I have to say, the um, that part of our book, the exposing the roots part, in one way I was horrified by <laughs> learning how much more orchestrated and effective <laughs> and brilliant the strategy was that got us here. On the other hand, I flipped it and said, wait a minute, this was all so intentional. There wasn't anything inevitable about it. It's because some smart guys with a lot of money figured it out how to shift the American mind and read the rules. Now that this is exposed, uh, maybe we don't have as much money, but maybe we have more people and more creativity. So, you know, what humans beings have made? 
human beings can unmake. Right. And we we have the home field advantage. In other words, they've they've erected a social construction and convinced us that it's real, but the real world is still here. The human spirit's still here. So, you know, this right. distortion doesn't have the home field advantage in this case. I love that. Right. And also just, you know, it really has only been about less than a decade since a lot of the stuff that we write about has been known. We don't proclaim to be doing the investigative journalism. There have been people who have been doing this work. Jane Mayer, who wrote the book Dark Money, we're totally indebted to her. Many other people, Zachary Roth, uh, who wrote a book called The Great Suppression, Ari Berman, who now writes for Mother Jones, wrote a book called Give Us the Ballot. We're we're just synthesizing real investigative journalists' work. Uh, to kind of, you know, put it into a short, concise way for most people to understand. But we've only, you know, this stuff has only been uncovered less than a decade ago, more or less. So, you know, it's only been a little bit of time that we know we've known this stuff. So we're just now beginning to be able to try and fight back to unravel it because we couldn't actually have that fight, or at least a fair fight. But the only reason really to expose the roots, I mean, is not that everyone has to know the history of the demise of democracy. It's just to denaturalize it. Right. Just so you no longer see it. So you no longer see these rules as given circumstances, but as... The decisions made by a bunch of icky guys over the few decades that can be discarded. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then we get to number three, the most important one and the hardest one right now, I guess, is creating solutions together. You know, so what do we do? We just go on Meetup and find some other people that want to do something and meet in the town hall and go to the Starbucks? What do we do? Well, fortunately, there are a lot of great organizations that have proven Uh, what can happen when we come together. There are now at a state level and, you know, New York City with with its uh, um, fair elections for city council that has a six to one the six to one match yeah. match so that you know what didn't look like New York City in this those city council seats now the, they are inhabited those seats by people who look like and are out of the various segments of our society so I think part of this is just showing people that yes there has been made progress has been made and that there are now more people committed than ever to taking that to a whole new level of visibility. It has been largely invisible. And that's where this democracy movement comes in. And one of the reasons that we've created something called Field Guide to Democracy, that's the URL. The actual web is Field Guide to the Democracy Movement. And it's really about ready to go prime time. It's not quite where we want it to be by the time of this tour. But um, this URL is just Field Guide to Democracy and our dream for it. And you listeners, I want you to be part of that dream because it could be so helpful to all of us. One spot in where, where wherever you are, you could come there and find out what's happening locally as, as well as get a big picture of the, the most important national campaign that you can weigh in on and that you can be part of a local group and, um, and circle around those issues and learn about them and share about them on this one site, sign of a one online commons for the democracy movement where we can all be psyching each other, you know, up and lifting each other and learning from each other's mistakes as well as as successes. That That's our dream for this uh, fieldguidetodemocracy.org. And how does something like that get funded? That's a good question. We were looking for that. It was out of Kickstarter. Well, right now, I just Small Planet Institute started creating. Basically, just started it with a bunch of interns in an Excel Mm -hmm. sheet. Um, But what I will say, just on on this topic, is that you know, in in every state right now, there are efforts to to really try and push democracy to where it's never been. Um, There are people fighting to 
enact really significant reforms in, in really diverse places. I mean, again, I'll mention South Dakota again. After South Dakota passed that anti-corruption package, the legislature in, I think, a couple months after the election, I think it was in February, uh, called an emergency session or I forget, it was some sort of emergency provision uh, that allowed them to repeal what the voters had just passed. Um, but people didn't give up. And so now in South Dakota, there's more mobilizing to get it on the uh, ballot initiative for the state constitution. So the legislature can't override it. Um, so even in South Dakota, it's becoming a hotbed for these issues. And so Washington state is another one, Oregon, uh, New York state. I mean, New York state has some of the worst voting laws in, in the country, believe it or not. And, you know, there's a big effort to try and fix that. Um, I think that the, the register or the, the deadline to change your party is, I think, coming up in a week, for a year from now. Um, so there are many ways to kind of uh, get involved. I want to I want to close with, with one question to Francis, which is the one that I guess occurred to me when I got the first email about this book. You know, I'm, I'm familiar with your work for the past I don't know 20 or so years. You know, a lot of environmentalism, um, uh, what I would call grounded spirituality. Um, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of memes about why we're connected to everything as a species, as a society, and and this kind of a, a holistic approach to what are we here for? How do we make it better if we can, or at least not do harm? And what the heck is going on? So for me, it's a profound it's a profound choice on your part at this stage in your career to say, you know. I'm going to commit wholeheartedly to democratic process because it's it's for those of us who are in your camp and in your general world, that's a pretty wonky place to go. Do you know what I mean? It's like, wow. So, demo- I mean, because I'm sure half the listeners of this show want to just go, oh, screw democracy. Elections are rigged. The whole thing doesn't matter. But here, one of our role models is saying, no, wait a minute. Democracy really, 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 really matters. How did how did that happen for you? Well, since the 80s, I've been saying that, well, my first book was about world hunger, and I've been saying that hunger is not caused by a scarcity of food, but a scarcity of democracy. And so I've been in one river with these two currents of mm. food and, and environmentalism, and uh, I guess there are three currents anyway. There are a bunch of currents. Um, and democracy. And yes, I made a vow in 2015 that I would devote the rest of my life to the mother of it all the, in, in the sense of really the foundational question of who makes choices and that the only way that we can fulfill our desire and need to restore our environment, to heal the racial divisions, all, all the things I care most about are uh, only possible with democracy. So that's it. That's it. But what I I discovered once I made that decision, I acted, you know, the Woody Allen line, 90% of life is showing up. So I showed up. I showed up at the first global conference on money and politics. That was my first step. And there waiting in the rain in the airport in Mexico City was this guy here, Adam Mike. And uh, we've been talking ever since. But the real turning point for me in terms of my absolute, you know, just in my cells, democracy, was marching from Philadelphia to D.C. in April of 2016 and sitting in on the steps of the Capitol with uh, among 1,300 people, which may be the largest on the Capitol steps of a civil disobedience. 
that process, Doug, that process of meeting people I would never have met otherwise, and, you know, like an Iraq vet, for example, and, and talking deeply and realizing we absolutely shared values, and an ex-banker, same experience, and talking, talking, and walking, walking, I didn't feel alone, and it was the first time I didn't feel like that oddball, you know, really, oh, yeah, all these people. And then something happened as I approached the Capitol, as I we were ch- chanting, who's democracy? Our democracy. And I saw the dome come into focus. And there was something happened inside me that said, oh, yeah, it's mine. I'm an owner of this democracy. Huge shift. And among that shift was what we've called civil courage then, the the belief that I could do what was uncomfortable. It would be more comfortable to just stay Francis Morlapay and write my nice... I hope they're nice books. They are nice books. Good. It would be very comfortable. Yeah. And yet, I know, I know, I uh, this 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 is the thrill of democracy, of stepping out what you thought you couldn't do and doing what's slightly uncomfortable for you that doesn't quite come naturally. That's the thrill of democracy because you know it's for the highest purpose on earth right now. Well, you are daring. And I hope we can all dare democracy together here. I mean, this is a... a it's a, it's a rallying cry to actually uh, take this responsibility and this privilege seriously and uh, and a very hopeful uh, assessment of our ability as a species to take the reins of civilization uh, back under human control. It's never been more important than right now. And we certainly consider you a dare-er for democracy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> thank, well, thank you. you. Well, I consider you both members of Team Human. So thank you so much for playing on the, on the side of, uh, of the humans. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. You've been on Team Human. Our guests today, Francis Morlapay and Adam Eichen, with the new book, Daring Democracy. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Hello, Team Human friends. Thanks for joining us for another episode this week. We'll be taking next week off for Thanksgiving, and we'll be back with another episode on the 29th. Also, thanks to all our supporters via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash teamhuman to join the team. The intro and outro music you heard on today's show is thanks to Discord Records and Fugazi. And in the middle, you heard a clip from Team Human friend and guest, Are You Serious? My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.